Well, each Lord's Day, after uh, the sermon closes, we all stand up, and what do we do? We recite the Ten Commandments together. And by now, uh, who thinks they have the Ten Commandments memorized now? All right, I won't call anyone out on the spot, right? But, uh, you know, you do something every week enough times, and eventually you might even have the Nicene Creed memorized, right? I, I think I have forgotten the Apostles' Creed because I try to do the Apostles' Creed and then I start saying the Nicene Creed and I'm, I'm all confused. So, But uh, we, we do these Ten Commandments every week. And so if I ask you, what is the fourth commandment? I'll give you a sec. What's the fourth commandment? It's remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And see, so you guys are the people keeping the fourth commandment because you're here, right? Uh, hopefully not resting, not sleeping while the sermon's going, but this is a day of holy rest, of worship unto the Lord. And we rightly uh, remember that that's how we keep the fourth commandment. Your child asks you, you know, what does it mean to remember the Sabbath day? It means we remember that that is God's special day where we go and worship him in his sanctuary. We, we go to church. Now, uh, the version of the Ten Commandments that we recite every Lord's Day uh, is actually an abbreviated version of the full text that you'd find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So we don't actually recite the totality of the fourth commandment every week. It would just, it would be a lot of text to recite uh, the Ten Commandments in its entirety. So we've summarized it. So uh, when most of us think of keeping the fourth commandment, of remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, we uh, typically think, and think rightly, it refers to going to church taking rest from your worldly labors. Um, This is, rightly, the essence of Sabbath-keeping in the New Covenant. However, uh, going to church on Sunday, uh, ceasing from your work, is really only one-half, or more accurately, one-seventh of the Fourth Commandment. Because the rest of the Fourth Commandment reads as follows. So listen to this. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the next line, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them, in them is, and rested the seventh, seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So not only are we commanded to rest, as God rested one day in seven, but we are also uh, to do good work on those six other days. Just as God worked and made heaven and earth in six days and called what he made good, even very good, so also he says to us, six days shall you labor and do all your work. Meaning you can't actually have seventh day rest on the Lord's day unless you have been busy working hard unto the Lord on those six other days. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work is just as much as uh, is just as much a part of keeping the fourth commandment as the cessation of work on the seventh day. So um, I've titled the sermon this morning, Why We Work, Why We Work. And in it, I want to focus on uh, this other half or this other really uh, six sevenths of the fourth commandment. I want to explore what God's word has to say about the way we live our lives on the six days that we are not here. So there are three uh, basic truths that I want to expound for us from the scriptures, and they are these. Number one, work is good. 
Work is good. Number two, work is hard. It's hard. And number three, good work is service to the Lord. Work is good. Work is hard. Good work is service to the Lord. Now, before we get into these three truths in depth, I want to briefly uh, survey our text of 2 Corinthians 9. And I have chosen this passage to frame our study of work because in it, we find this most precious promise in verse 8. This is a verse uh, to write upon your heart. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Isn't that a good verse? Notice all the universals in this verse, the alls and the every. Paul is telling the Corinthians in very comprehensive terms that they cannot outgive God. No matter how generous and loving and giving you are to others, the reward you receive from God in return always surpasses whatever gift you gave. We pour ourselves out for others and God makes us overflow even more than before. He says in verse six, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. So in the immediate historical context of 2 Corinthians, Paul is actually gathering funds from the different Gentile churches to help alleviate the uh, Christians who are in Jerusalem and who are suffering from famine. So he's taking an offering. He's traveling around gathering this money so that he can bring it back to Jerusalem and help them out. And, and so he holds out for them this uh, kind of agricultural truism to illustrate the way that God's economy works. If you sow a little, you reap a little. If you sow a lot, you reap a lot. So what size harvest do you want to have? He goes on in verse 7 to describe the kind of sowing or giving that God wants from them. He says, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So when we give, or when we work, or when we sow a seed of whatever size, our sowing ought to be done without sadness in our heart for losing the thing that we are giving. Because in God's economy, no good thing is ever truly lost. And therefore, our giving should be done with cheerfulness and joy. Think about this. Wouldn't it be a strange sight if you went out uh, to a farmer's field and you saw him crying and you say, uh, why are you crying, man? And he says, I'm just so sad that I'm losing all of these seeds. He's just sowing his seed and he's just so sad that all of these seeds are going into the ground. You would rightly think that uh, that guy does not understand farming. <laughs> What's he doing in this field anyways? Doesn't he know that what he puts into the ground is going to come up perhaps 30, 60, or 100 fold. This same principle of sowing seed cheerfully applies to every aspect of life. Right? It should be a strange sight for the world to see us grieving at the gifts we offer to the Lord. Right? God loves a cheerful giver. So whatever your vocation or calling or work is, that's your field. God says in Colossians 3.17, he says, whatever you do, 
That covers it all, right? Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, you're sowing. Maybe you're reaping in certain seasons. But that's the field God has called you to work in, and you're to do whatever you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, it says in 1 Corinthians 9.10, it says, He who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So the Bible is describing work, plowing, threshing, stuff that is going to be hard to do, and he says it ought to be done with hope because you know what your work is pointed towards. Most famously, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So our six days of labor in this world at whatever job you have, whether it is uh, scrubbing toilets or flipping burgers or teaching children or uh, milking goats, it is a work that God wants you to do cheerfully, joyfully, with hope in your heart, That whatever you sow in faith, God shall reward richly. It says again in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This applies in the natural world with earthly things. And it also applies in the supernatural realm with spiritual things. God is always watching. God is always watching. God sees us at work when no one else does. And it is this truth that allows Paul to encourage us by saying this in Ephesians 6. He says, bond servants, so employees, workers, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. As to Christ. And he goes on, not with eye service, looking busy only when the boss steps into the room, not with eye service, not as a man pleaser, not being a suck up, a teacher's pet, don't be that, but do it as a bond servant of Christ. God is your boss. You're doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Right? You're flipping burgers to the glory of God. You're milking the goat to the glory of God. You're doing whatever you're doing to the glory of God because God is your boss, not whoever your actual boss is. And he says, he goes on, this is still in uh, Ephesians 6, knowing that whatever good anyone does, there's a universal again, whatever good anyone does, however good that Big Mac is, right? What, however good that diaper you changed was, okay, right? Whatever good, however good that meal you made is, whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's slave or whether he is free, whether he's the intern or whether he is the CEO. So if you are a wage slave, and many people in America are wage slaves, you're stuck in a job you don't love with a boss or, co- or coworkers you cannot stand, you have the same opportunity and even responsibility as the person who has their dream job. You have the same responsibility as that person to do your best work for your employer as serving the Lord. This is the Protestant vision of vocation, the Protestant work ethic that made our nation as prosperous as it is. And yet we live in a time where unemployment, especially young, able-bodied men, are not working. (laughs) 
anymore. Or people are retiring far earlier than they ought. See, God sees our work and he blesses our work. And he wants us to do our best work as unto him. Uh, Consider for a moment the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph. Joseph, uh, when Joseph was at the bottom of the pit and then sold into slavery and then unjustly accused and then put into prison, what was God doing to Joseph? Well, God was preparing him to rule the world. (laughs) He was preparing him to be second in command into Egypt. And so uh, according to natural eyes, that looks like demotion, 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 demotion. Right, first you're in a pit, okay, we'll sell you into slavery. You do excellent job, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses you. Now you're in the prison. And and then you're forgotten. And you're Joseph wondering, what is God doing? And he recognizes, remember, at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you know, what you, my brothers, meant for evil, God meant for good. What you know Potiphar really meant to demote him, what uh, his brothers really meant to sell him into slavery was God's preparation to be king, to be second in command. God was preparing him to be ruler of Egypt. In a similar way, our whole life in this world is a preparation for eternal life. We experience a taste of the eternal Sabbath when we rest by faith in Christ. And then from the strength that God supplies, we then do the good works that Ephesians 2.10 says, God prepared in advance for you to do. God did not just prepare a cloud for you to sit on for eternity and play harps unto him. You do have that waiting for you. (laughs) It'll be far more glorious than, than that might sound. But God prepared a lot of good works for you to do. Putting up drywall, vacuuming the floor, doing the dishes, cleaning stuff up. All of that is spiritual work, good work that God prepared in advance for you to do. Do you believe that? So consider, consider whatever vocation, calling, or work you have now as the field in which God wants you to sow for six days. And remember that whatever harvest you don't see or receive in this life, you shall receive in the next on that eternal Sabbath. So there are seasons where you sow and you sow and you sow and you sow, and you're wondering, I don't think anything's happening. And there are some people who in this life die having sowed a lot of seed and have not ever seen you know, the little green sprout come up. You don't always live to see springtime. You don't always live to see the fall harvest. But when you know Christ and you know the gospel, what did Jesus say? He says, unless you die, unless a man dies and puts his life like a seed into the ground, he will not live. So this is all of our works all the time. Whatever you do is seed going into God's Ground. And that should shape our attitude about our work. So all of us uh, probably have at least more than one vocation. So your vocation is the thing simply that God has called you to do. So if you are um, a married man, you have the vocation of being a husband. You have the vocation, if you have children, of being a father. And then you have also the vocation of you know, what you 
go off to do six days or five days or your nine to five, right? So a lot of people have at least one or two and sometimes many more vocations or callings. And with that, God has given instructions for how you are uh, to do, uh, fulfill that calling. So if you're a husband, your wife and children are your field. If you are a mother, your children and grandchildren and household are your field. If you are a student, what is your field? It's your studies, it's the classroom, it's the tests and books and the field trips you go on. Whatever lawful work that God has called you to do, that is the field he wants you to sow and plow and water and weed. And when you do this in obedience and service to Christ, God is the one who gives the growth. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 reminds us that if we, quote, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. This is true, again, in the natural realm and is all the more true in the spiritual realm. Right? The things that are most valuable are immaterial. It's knowledge of God, communion with God, the, the souls of the church and the saints and your children. Right? Those are the immortal and lasting things. So this is the encouragement and promise we have from God, and we must cling to it when things are hard. That verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, all the time, having all sufficiency, everything you need, in all things, you may abound to every good work. So write that promise upon your heart. Because with that as the motivation for our work, we can then consider these three other truths about the work itself. Work is good. Work is hard. Good work is service to the Lord. So let's uh, shift gears and consider these three truths. So truth number one, work is good. One of the most common misconceptions that people have about work is that work is a result of the fall. Many people falsely imagine that if sin had never entered the world, our lives would be a perpetual vacation, lounging around, eating and drinking, playing games, and doing nothing productive with our time. But this is not the story that Scripture tells. Instead, what do we see in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, we see that before Adam and Eve sinned, Adam had a job. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This word for tend is the Hebrew word avad, and it is a very, very common word that is elsewhere translated as working or serving or doing or tilling the ground. Moreover, when God calls Israel out of Egypt, the whole purpose for delivering them from slavery and bondage is so that they can avad, serve the Lord. So notice this avad, this work or service or tending of the garden is something God gives Adam to do prior to sin entering the world. When God looked out at all that he had created and said, it is all very good. Genesis 1:31. It's all very good. You know what that included? It included the avad. It included the work that Adam was given to do. God saw that assignment, that job, and he said, It's very good. It was very good that Adam had to tend and keep the garden. 
And so really essential to who you are as a human being, not just as a Christian, but just as a person made in the image of God, your work is your first purpose and source of meaning in life. Whereas many people work in order to live, the biblical doctrine is that we live in order to work. We live to avod. We live to serve the garden and serve the Lord in the garden. So rather than uh, kind of bifurcating or separating work from worship, which is what many people do, Genesis 1 and 2 actually unites them in the very word itself, this avad. It unites these concepts as the one purpose for which we were created, to avad, to work in the garden, and to avad, to serve the Lord. Same word. So you were created to avad, to work for six days, just like God worked for six days, and then he rested on the seventh. So those six days of service in the soil are very good. And when we participate in this creational pattern that is reaffirmed after the fall, in the fourth commandment, six days thou shalt labor, we are participating in the life of God and his work to renew the world. So work is not just good, it's actually very good. And when done as service unto the Lord, it becomes an offering pleasing to him. One of the reasons we work for six days is so that on the seventh, when God calls us to his throne, throne room, we have something to actually offer him. This is why we call it the first fruits or the fruit of our hands labor. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4.2 says, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So both men worked. Both men made offerings from their work unto the Lord. But Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And it says in 1 John 3.12 that Cain's works were evil and his brother's righteous. So notice, it's actually not enough to simply give God an offering from your labor. That's what Cain did. Cain went to church. Cain paid his tithe. But God rejected it because... His work on those six days was evil. Abel's was accepted because it was an excellent sacrifice. So your work needs to be actually good for God to receive it. It needs to be like Abel's. It needs to be offered in faith for God to accept it and be pleased with it. We know that our works are imperfect. And yet when you offer them in faith, you plead the blood of Jesus Christ, God accepts that. So again, you see that worshiping God every Sunday is actually an exercise in hypocrisy if you are not doing good work unto the Lord on the other six days. It is what we do Monday to Saturday that God judges and rewards or punishes on Sunday. So work is good. Work is very good. And even before the fall, the Bible teaches that we were created to work for six days and rest on the seventh. Not work for five, five days and do nothing for two days. Work for six days and rest on the seventh. This brings us to a second truth about work, which is that work is hard. Work is hard. If Adam's original task as a bachelor was to tend and keep the garden, God added to him a second task after he was married, which is... Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So Adam has a calling, a vocation, a work to do even prior to Eve's arrival. So you know this, before you get married, you need to have a job, dude. You need to be tending and keeping whatever garden God has given you to do. And then once you're married, once Adam's married, he adds another task that he couldn't have done before. He couldn't be fruitful and multiply by himself in the garden. Right? He needed, he needed Eve, so now he has this other vocation. He has multiple things he has to do. So the work of husband and wife described here in Genesis 1.28, is often called uh, the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. And this is God's command to extend the beauty and order of Eden to the rest of the world, to the four corners of the earth. It says this in Genesis 2.10-13. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And then on it describes the other rivers. So Adam and Eve were placed in this beautiful garden, and yet God doesn't want them to just sit around and stay there forever eating pomegranates. He wants them to follow these rivers, and he says, hey, there's good gold out there. There's bdellium and onyx stones, right? You want to get something for your wife Eve? You're going to have to follow this river and go dig in the dirt. You're going to have to refine the thing. You're going to have to make some fire and put the stone in the fire and make it into something different. He wants them to follow these rivers and find gold and precious stones and build things out of them. It is the work of man and woman together that transforms nature into culture. God put many raw materials into the ground, and he commissioned the human race to go and find them, to dig them up, to purify them, to mix them, to match them, to build things out of them. And it is this cultivation of God's world that transforms it from one degree of glory to another. I mean... You think about all, you go walk into the supermarket and you see everything on the shelf in plastic boxes or paper boxes or what. You see all this packaged food or this food in the produce section. Literally every single thing that exists came from the ground, right? The, the stuff that we call man-made was at some point dug out of the ground mixed with some other things, right? You think about all the different foods that you've never tasted and that God wanted to be here. And then he wanted you to mix them together. Five ingredients, 10 ingredients, make them hot, make them cold, uh, ferment them. Think of the endless things you can just do to put in your mouth and feed your belly. This is all part of the dominion mandate that God put you know, oil in the ground so that we could eventually put it in these big rockets and go off you know, to outer space. So when we do good work in obedience to Genesis 1.28, we are being God's instruments for actually taking this creation from one degree of glory to another. Grapes are good, wine is better. 
This is part of what it means to be God's image upon the earth. God created, we sub-create. God provides the raw material, we refashion those materials into art. Now, as glorious as this task is, and it is worth your meditation to think about this, uh, sin has indeed made everything harder. When God pronounces the curse in Genesis 3, he tells Adam and Eve how their sin is going to frustrate and make more difficult the unique task that corresponds with either the male or female nature. So Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So because of our sin... Being fruitful, that's like the first thing in the dominion mandate, go be fruitful. Now, being fruitful, bearing and raising children becomes exponentially harder. He says, greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And not only this, the woman's work as a helper to her husband is going to be frustrated as well. You know, husband and wife don't always get along. They're tempted to blame one another when they get frustrated. So this is part of the curse upon the woman. For the man, God says in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, cursed is the ground. So the woman's womb is now made a difficult place to uh, have children. And for man, it's the ground. Cursed is the ground for your sake, Adam. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So not only will everyone eventually die because of sin, it is now through toil that we have to get our food. And there's thorns and thistles that are going to fight against us. So instead of working without a sweat, we now must exert far more effort than we would have in our unfallen state. My wife Uh, Growing up, she had five sisters, and they had like an acre garden down in Vancouver. And she tells me many stories of uh, weeding. You know, an acre uh, garden is pretty big. Um, And, uh, you know, her and her five sisters had to work that soil. And she says, you know, I, I remember pulling weeds in the hot sun all day long and thinking, why, Adam and Eve? Why? Right? That's about as close as your children can get to the curse of Genesis 3.16. You know, go make them weed and say, you can't eat (laughs) unless you pull all of the weed, right? This is where we get our food from, and you got to labor in the hot sun. This this is the curse on the soil. So uh, for all of us who are descended from Adam and Eve, we still have this cultural mandate from God. Work six days, be fruitful and multiply, right? That still applies to us, but it's just way harder now. Our work fights us. So work is good, but because of sin, work is now toilsome and sweaty. And yet it is this hard and difficult work that remember, God prepared in advance for you to do. All of the promises, all of this teaching about work that we've been hearing has sin factored in. God didn't just say, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord with joyful and cheerful spirits because it's easy to be joyful and cheerful. No, he tells us those things because it's actually really, really hard to do hard work with a good attitude. It's really hard to do the same thing 
every single day, over and over. And your, your Ecclesiastes, you know, vanity of vanities. I'm just, you know, spinning the plates. And yet God wants you to look at that and remember, this is the field that he calls you to labor in. And when you do it with an eye to him as your employer, you can do it unto the Lord. Jesus Christ is the supreme example of what good work looks like in a fallen world. And it is he who exemplifies for us this third truth. So truth number three is good work is service to the Lord. So work is good, work is hard. Good work, that's the important adjective. Good work is service to the Lord. Think about this. When God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he did not immediately start preaching and trying to evangelize his neighbors. As important as evangelism and missionary work is, Jesus Christ spent his first 30 years living in this toilsome world, first as a baby, and then growing as a child, increasing in wisdom and stature, Luke 2.52, and then working with his hands as a carpenter in Galilee. So before Jesus ever preached to the multitudes, he served the Lord by working with his hands. So if you're a young man in your 20s, like, compare yourself with Christ. You know, if you're 25 and you're Jesus, you still have five more years of working as a carpenter until you start doing any kind of uh, ministry. So what kind of work ethic do you think Jesus the carpenter had? Well, we know that as a perfect man, he worked with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that whatever he built or remodeled or fixed was done with all the care and attention to detail that the one who created the world could give. Right? If Jesus Christ created the universe, imagine what kind of dining table he could build for you. Imagine the quality of the cabinets that Jesus the carpenter installed. Imagine the excellence and craftsmanship of whatever came out of his shop. You see, it was the eternal and divine plan of salvation that God would come to earth and throughout his 20s, he would work with his hands building things, toiling in the same dusty and sweaty conditions that his father Joseph and every other blue-collar Galilean worked in. And yet that work was spiritual service to the Lord. It was not below the dignity of God to get his hands covered in sawdust. And this is the humble and excellent standard of work that all of Christ's followers, Christians, should imitate. Now, there are two uh, common misconceptions about work that I think many Christians have fallen into and they must be rejected. So these are miscon two misconceptions. The first misconception is that work is only a means to paying our bills or providing for our families. And then that's it. Many Christians view their nine to five or eight to six or whatever hours you work, they view that job as just in a means to an end and that end is a paycheck. But again, this is not the biblical view of work. Work is a means to many things, but work is also an end in itself. Say that again. Work is a means to many things, but work is also an end in itself. It's avad. When work is done excellently as working unto the Lord, it is of real benefit to the person you are serving and of real merit in the eyes of God. 
What is God going to reward you for on judgment day, right? Your sins are forgiven, and yet there are rewards that he hands out. Well, over and over again, the Bible says that God is going to reward us for our good works. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15, as Paul describes his own works. He says this, and notice all of the uh, different vocations included here. He says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Right? Build carefully, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So think about your vocation or vocations. Whatever it is, ask yourself, what is the quality of my work? Right? If you're a mother, what is the quality of your mothering? If you're uh, someone working at the mill, what is the quality of the wood you mill? Right? What material are you building with? Are you building with wood, hay, and straw, which the fire of judgment is going to burn up? Or are you working in faith, hope, and love, building with gold, silver, and precious stones? Materials that, notice, not only survive, but are made better by the fire. When Jesus was literally working with wood in his carpentry shop, in spiritual terms, he was building with gold because he was working excellently for the glory of God. And so however humble your, you know, literal working materials might seem, remember that anything you do can become gold, silver, and precious stones when you do it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength cheerfully unto God, right? You could be uh, working in a call center 10 hours a day doing something that seems very menial and very uh, minimum wage, and yet you could have far more glory waiting for you in heaven than, you know, the person who does all these spiritual things. Spiritual things. So however humble your literal working materials might be, how you do it determines what actually those materials are in the eyes of God. And this is how good work becomes spiritual worship. When you treat it not merely as a means to a paycheck or providing for your family, those are, of course, good things, but you must treat it as an end in itself. God sees and God rewards. Build with gold, silver, precious stones. So that's the first misconception. Your work is not just a means, it's an end in itself. The second misconception about work is that in order for our work to please God, we have to use it as a means to evangelism or some kind of church ministry. So again, notice the error is turning work into a means to a spiritual end rather than a spiritual end in itself. So this is 
the false teaching that says the only purpose in your work is to give a portion of your paycheck to the church building fund. This is the false teaching that says you are only serving the Lord at your job if you're also leading a Bible study with your coworkers. And while, of course, it is not a sin to lead a Bible study with your coworkers, assuming it's not on company time, it is no sin to give to the building fund. Go ahead and do it if you want. But you must not view your work as somehow less spiritual if you are not doing those more uh, pious-sounding things. Christian piety includes doing excellent and outstanding work. God wants you to be tired and to enjoy the satisfaction of a job well done. Remember Romans 12, 1. What is spiritual worship? It is when you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul says in Romans 6, 19, present your members, your bodily members, as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So this means that wherever your body is, wherever your members are, is a place of reasonable service, or you could translate it as spiritual worship. So regard whatever it is that your hand sets to do as work for God. Whether you are uh, wiping a snotty nose, or pouring concrete, or typing code, or managing an office, office, or whatever it is, all good work is spiritual service to the Lord. I'll close with this. What makes the Sabbath sweet is when we work really, really hard for six days, toiling, suffering, getting up early, plowing in hope. And then we stop and we sit down with God around this communion table and we give thanks to him for the fruit of our hands. And we remember the promise that is given in Revelation 14, 13 to 14, which says this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. They rest from their labors and their works follow them. So what works are going to follow you? Dust we are and to dust we shall return. But by faith in Christ, we shall leave this dust behind and shall attain to a resurrection harvest that will make these days of sweaty toil as but a dream. And so in this life, we plow in hope we sow with joy and we cling to the promise that in due season we shall reap God if we do not lose heart. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and amen.